Hello, and welcome to a special COVID-19 edition of the What Works for Children's Social Care podcast. Government guidelines around social distancing have forced us all to change how we live and work, not least those working with some of our most vulnerable children and young people. From our conversations with social workers and children's services departments across the country, we know that many have responded with imaginative and innovative solutions to the challenge posed by COVID-19. These podcasts will share with you some of the ways people working in children's social care are responding to inspire and reassure you. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, or you would like to get more involved and share how you're adapting with these challenges, please get in touch. Details are in the show notes. Hello, I'm Michael Sanders, Chief Executive of What Works for Children's Social Care. We're an independent charity looking to create and collate an evidence base in children's social care to improve outcomes for children, young people and families. In the latest edition of our special COVID-19 series of podcasts, I'm talking to Andy Elvin, CEO of TACT, the UK's largest dedicated fostering charity. We'll be talking about the experience of foster carers, children and young people and care experienced adults during this unprecedented time, as well as how he and his colleagues in TACT have been responding. In addition to being CEO of TACT since 2014, Andy is a social worker and a former foster carer. He is also a founding trustee of Frontline Social Work, so has an interesting perspective on many areas of children's social care. Andy, thank you for joining us. No problem. Good to be here. So your perspective is a little bit different from some of the guests we've had on so far, because you're sitting outside of um, a local authority. What are the sort of the concerns that you've had about during this pandemic about some of the responses um, and how things are going? Generally, the response has been very good. I mean, the response from our staff and our foster carers has been astonishing. We locked down early on the 16th of March when the first announcement was made because it was obvious what was coming. And that worked very well for us because by the end of the, that week, everyone was working at home. Uh, most people have the kit to work at home already, which helped. Foster carers were very glad to lock down early because they were becoming increasingly concerned about the safety of children going into school. And so they were glad when that, that stopped. And uh, so that's been good. Um, Ofsted have been very helpful and have been from the start. They reacted well. I'm not sure the DFE or some local authorities acted quite so well so quickly. We were still getting quite a lot of pressure through the first few weeks about having face-to-face meetings and face-to-face birth family contact. We were just very robust in saying, you know, you've got to be joking. This is a terrible idea. There's no one read the Public Health England advice. But quickly that fell away and people are doing pretty well now. And I think a lot of common sense has come to bear, which probably wasn't there in the first few weeks because everyone was finding their way. So obviously, uh, for many of the young people who are in foster care, they will be at some point hoping to be reunited with their families and contact with their with their birth parents is a, an integral part of that. How is that being managed at the moment? We're doing that all virtually. So a variety of things, you know, um, Microsoft Teams and Skype and WhatsApp video and FaceTime. So there's any number of, uh, of apps being used. And actually, we've had quite a lot of feedback from our carers that it's improved the quality of contact in many cases because contact isn't taking place in a strange situation like a contact center it's taking place at a point where the child feels safe and somewhere the child is familiar with and there's less pressure on the child because you know the contact's going on virtually they don't feel quite as pressured as perhaps they might do in fact a real hallmark of what's happening has been children seem a great deal more settled and calmer and less anxious 
than they do because for many of our children the outside world can be a challenging place and school can be a challenging place and actually we're finding that there is less pressure on them at the moment so in terms of self-esteem opening up and talking to foster carers being just better in themselves we're seeing quite a lot of that at the moment that's really that's a nice thing to hear yeah and there's and the lack of meetings has really helped as well because what they're having now is a childhood that hasn't got the system trampling all over it we find many ways within the sector to remind children they're in care by a series of meetings about them you know no other children in the country when they want to do something sit down and have a meeting about it formally you know it doesn't happen so it's quite nice for our children they're moving to that and one of the things we're going to be pushing as we come out of this is how much of the things we do do we do for us as professionals and not for the benefit of children because if we could make a lot more meetings virtual and keep lots of visitors out of the home and make it feel more like it is a home it's a family house it's not a venue for lack meetings and review meetings and professionals meetings and school meetings and pet meetings and so on if we can maintain that that would be a good win out of this situation yeah i think the first time i went to a meeting of any kind was probably in my mid-20s when i first arrived in the civil service and for as you say for these children their their life has been governed by meetings since perhaps a very early age so that's that's really interesting it's nice that that con that virtual contact is is alleviating some of the the challenge and the stress and the anxiety of that i guess it's kind of the reverse of what a lot of us are experiencing because all of our contact with the outside world has moved digitally. But now, now it's sort of it's a beneficial uh, experience for some of these people, and certainly it's the same situation as it is for everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because sometimes some birth family members can find keeping to contact schedules is a is a challenge because of what's going on in their lives. It being virtual has improved attendance as well because it's it means you, you can attend from where you are as it were yeah so i certainly um the number of people who've been late to meetings with me seems to have declined because nobody <laughs> had the excuse that the tube into victoria was really bad today so that, that that's really sure i also think um i'm taken back to a conversation i had with a, a young person who was in care gosh must be a year ago now um and when i we were talking about sort of what would make their lives easier she just said consistency so knowing that when i'm if i'm supposed to be talking to my mum at this time that that's when it's going to happen and even if it isn't altogether that often knowing when it's going to happen and being confident that that's when it's going to happen she thought would really make a difference to her life so that's a positive so you've made as you said sort of you've you've listed all of the main forms of technology so it's like we're on the on the bbc you've got zoom you've got skype you've got whatsapp you've got um, Microsoft Teams that is really adaptive of you. How are you sort of seeing this changing your practice as you go forward? Are, are you going to go back to business as usual or is this some, some of this for the longer haul? I think a lot of this is for the longer haul. I think we've taken a, a step that would have taken maybe three to five years to take and we've taken it in seven weeks because some of the resistance was people were used to doing the things they were doing they quite liked the face-to-face. -face. They thought it was vital. But now they're doing Skype assessments. They're realising that assessment visits are more focused. They don't spend the time, you know, discussing the garden or the soft furnishings or, you know, something going on in the house. They spend the time discussing what they're there for. And in the time it takes to drive to someone's house, do the assessment visit and drive back, they've not only done the visit, they've written it into the assessment. 
so they're finding their time is more efficiently used. So it won't ever be all one or the other, but I think a lot of the virtual world will keep a lot of the visits, the statue visits we make out to foster homes, unless there's a real need to be face-to-face. -face. I think more of them will be FaceTime and, um, and Teams and so on ongoing. And we will push for a lot of the professionals meetings to be virtual as well. There really is no reason for everyone to have to traipse to the town hall or for everyone to traipse over the threshold of the foster household, which is an impingement on the foster carers and actually takes away from the feeling of it being a home to the young people as well. Which is, So all that will be good. So I think a lot of the things we do virtually will continue to do, which I think will be good for efficiency of work, but also good for the well-being of staff. You know, the lack of travel now, the environmental footprint is going down of many firms, which is a good thing. And I think we're realising that we put an awful lot of um, store by face-to-face -face and being in places. And actually, it's not always necessary. Obviously, professional judgment will come into it, but it's not. And so the more of this we can do, I think, the better. And we're expecting quite a number of home working requests at the end of this. Because I think staff have realised they can manage their work-life balance much, much better this way. We've been very um, flexible with staff who have childcare or um, older relatives' care and responsibilities to say we're all getting paid. Because luckily we're an organisation that you know most of the funding comes through the state, so no one's being furloughed. Everyone realises how fortunate they are because of that. And we're saying as long as the work gets done, the fact that you might be doing some of your carer supervisions at eight in the evening because that's more convenient for you and the carers and when it's over virtual platforms no one's traveling then we can carry on doing those kind of things we trust you to do the work that you need to do and if that means that your day looks slightly different than it did going into this so be it that's an interesting point so i guess one of the arguments for face-to-face -face contact which i've heard is that it allows you to see your colleagues not just their their face but their body language you can see if someone's having a bad day if they seem to be agitated in a way that they can just avoid seeing you if they're on the end of a virtual line um, or it's perhaps more difficult to pick up on some of those non-verbal cues is there anything you're doing at the moment to sort of make sure that those staff members sort of everyone's feeling supported and their morale is being kept as high as possible obviously without being able to go to the pub what we um what we did about a year ago was work with research and practice to introduce reflective supervision throughout the organisation and particularly for foster carers. Because one of the most important things we have to do with foster carers is to know what their emotional temperature is, you know, where they are. It's very easy to get very processy with meetings sometimes. And you can do the reflective supervision virtually and face to face and get to understand when people are okay and when they, you know, their emotional spirit level is a bit off because that's what you're looking for, because that's when people will do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. That's when they'll react to things in ways they wouldn't otherwise react. And I think ongoing after this, we'll be using that and our professional judgment to say, yes, I need to be out with the foster carers at the moment. There's something going on and I need to be face-to-face -face and I need to be in the house with them. But at other times, we'll allow social workers to use the professional judgment to say, actually, no, we're both far better off having a Skype call for an hour and not putting each other out and uh, and we can go through things there because things are okay at the moment so i think there'll be more of that there's always going to be a place for face to face but you know i don't think we should pathologize it too much to say it is the 
it is the be all and end all because it isn't. And I think there's been some research, some psychologist research about the way in which people, their brains perceive this kind of meeting very similarly to face to face meetings and actually get many of the same benefits out of it. And I think that's that's true. We're finding better attendance at meetings as well. Carer support groups, the attendance has gone up because it's easier. If you don't have to travel 45 minutes each way, all you're doing is dialing in for an hour. People will turn up and people will engage. So actually, I think engagement with support has gone up through this rather than going down, which is very pleasing. We weren't really expecting that. I think you see the same thing with some types of sort of social interactions, which are hard when you're looking after particularly young children. So you, you can't go out after 7 p.m. for 13 years. And obviously you can't get a babysitter in at the moment, but no one can go out. So there's sort of that opportunity to connect more people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the Zoom cafe has become uh, you know, something and that's something we've been very clear on with our staff as well. Quite a lot of our teams have virtual lunches. So everyone will log on to teams who's available that much time and they'll just have their lunch together while they're, uh, they're chatting away. And the, the rule is, you know, don't talk about work. And people are doing things like having quizzes and so on and uh, just to do fun things in the working day as well, just to keep that sense of morale up. Because we're noticing it a little bit now. There was the, after the adjustment and the excitement of this is very new, everyone's hitting the bit now. It's harder, I think, as it, as it carries on. We had, we had our first work uh, office pub quiz the other evening, um, which I think went fairly well, but people did not seem to enjoy my roundabout musicals. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, not, apparently it, it, it's an acquired taste, but never mind. Um, so one of the things you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago was doing assessments. This is for new foster carers? Yes, that's right, yeah. And so... From a lot of the conversations we have with local authorities, one of the really big challenges is foster carer recruitment um, and the fact that there is a generally a feeling that we need many, many more. Have you seen any changes to your foster carer sort of recruitment? Do you think more people are, fewer people are applying at the moment or more people? Because so you could see them thinking, I should you know, do something, I should get on with doing that thing I've been waiting to do. In, in my case, it's nothing, but some people may have. There is more interest at the moment. We're doing everything virtually. So the initial visit is being done by WhatsApp video. We go on a virtual tour of people's homes to check they've got the requisite space and so on. And we do all the um, skills to foster training sessions online and then by virtual meetings and all the assessments are done by meetings. It's going to, it takes about four to six months to assess a, a foster carer. So it's going to be unusual if we approve foster carers where we've never been to their house. That's going to be a stretch and that's going to be something that either we find a way of doing or we're going to have to to think ourselves into a slightly different space as professionals, I think, with that. But all the assessment meetings are going really well. And, you know, because it's a very in-depth thing being assessed to be a foster carer. You know, you're your assessing social worker will win mastermind at the end of it with you as their specialist subject. There's not much they're not going to know. So um, it gets very intense and personal anyway. So that's going fine. I think the general issue with foster care recruitment is, one, there never seems to be any national campaign to recruit foster carers. You see endless adverts and the DfE seems to spend a lot of money on teacher recruitment, but they never put a national campaign out for foster care recruitment, which is irritating or social workers 
or social workers. That's very true as well. That's always been quite irritating. And it would be good. And you don't have to spend much money these days. Once you've created the thing, it's far more useful on social media than it is on traditional media. media. So you don't have to pay to get it out there. You can get it out there through other routes. We do all our recruitment online anyway, all our attraction work online. And that's going well because people are spending more time on online at the moment. Um, the issue, I think, sometimes with foster care recruitment in local authorities anyway, and we're doing quite a lot of work with the LGA comms people over the last year, is they really aren't set up to do it because they're not a business. And so your foster carer is your your basic unit if you're running it as a business, so as a charity or as a private business, you you need them. So you have people who know about marketing and attraction doing the work on marketing attraction. Local authorities don't have those people. And even if they do have them, they don't work in children's services departments. And then with foster care, it's about momentum. If you're thinking of becoming a foster carer, when you phone the agency, that's the end of a process for you because you've talked to each other as a couple, you've talked to friends and family, you know, you put quite a lot of thought into wanting to do this. So when you phone the agency, you want to get going. You don't want to be told, oh, we'll get back to you in a week or so. You want to be said, yes, can we come and see you next Tuesday evening? And then you want to get on with the assessment. You want to move on. And that momentum is missing for most local authorities because they don't have a business unit set up to do it. And then they can't. We introduced about four years ago now, just said to our social workers, you've got to go out on initial visits and you do them. You keep your diary free and you do them when we need you to do them because you need that momentum. And so you need to when someone rings you to say, I want to be a foster carer by the end of that phone call, as long as they pass a few red lines. You want to have a date in their diary for someone going out to see them. And it's those, it's very basic processy stuff that's missing from local authority recruitment approaches to foster care. Because really, they've got a big open goal because still people naturally gravitate to the local authority as the first place to ask. They could do more on it, but they're not set up to do it because local authorities are not businesses. Mm, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm. I'm not going to advocate for local government being more like a business, but um, that's definitely a, a, an interesting perspective. In your words, not mine. <laughs> so, even in the best of circumstances, some foster care placements break down, and uh, young people need to need to move placements. I was wondering, I guess, two things. One is, have you seen a change in the rate at which that's happening? Is it happening more or less now than it was uh, before we all were trapped in our houses with our nearest and dearest? And what happens if it, when that happens now? How does a placement change? Yeah, thankfully, it's happening less now because, as I said earlier, children seem to have relaxed somewhat. There seems to be less anxiety at the moment, so there is less friction because a lot of the time foster carers are dealing with the consequence of things that have happened in the school day and they're dealing with the upset and the hurt of that and at the moment they're not doing that which is an interesting thing and something we need to look at more closely as this as we come out of this the breakdowns we have seen are largely to do with you know teenagers 14 to 17 18 who've decided that lockdown isn't for them and they're going to ignore it and foster carers particularly those with underlying health conditions are saying much as we'd love to keep this young person, we can't take the risk that they're going to bring CB19 into the household. So we've seen that happen a few times, sadly, which has been very unfortunate because there's no other reason for the placement to break down. But you can't argue against a foster carer who has to put their health first, I think is fair enough. 
there will always be some other breakdowns. There will always be issues that cannot be resolved. It's difficult at the moment because moving into another foster placement or residential placement, we're saying to all our foster carers at the moment, essentially it's your choice if you take children or not. We can only say to you that there's a 50-50 chance that they'll bring CV-19 into your household because there's been very little testing to date. And you know the background, you know about the child, and you can take an educated guess or the social worker may know if there's been CV-19 in their household that they've come from, but they might not. The majority of our carers are still taking children. So it's only those with underlying health conditions that are, are more concerned about that at the moment. So there are places for children to go. And then you just have to deal with the practicalities of it happening. Obviously, getting hold of PPE equipment is difficult. That's beginning to move forward. We've been working with the LJ on that, and there's some suppliers now, but there isn't much in the way of supply. A lot of the PPE equipment is single use, which is difficult. We've got a duty of care towards our staff, of course, so we need to make sure they've got the right equipment. If they're going to pick up a child and transport a child to another foster home, we need to make sure they're protected while they're doing that. And obviously, you want to avoid that happening, so you want to work with the family to prevent the breakdown. That's harder if you can't do a lot of face-to-face -face work. So we do have some PPE equipment and we are still home visiting. But we have to, we've been very clear that there needs to be consent about this. You know, the foster carers need to be happy for the professional to come into the home. The professional needs to be happy to go out into the home because we don't want people feeling coerced at this point because there's enough anxiety out there without, without doing that. And that is working. We're also finding that some of our support workers, our children's support workers, are doing some excellent online work with children and of course the children are far more comfortable with doing everything in the online world than we are you know for them that's natural habitat and we interestingly i was learning this morning that we have a very good um chill out group in wales where a lot of young people get, get together on a regular basis and they've decided that after this is over they want to do it virtually because actually they much prefer doing it in a virtual meetup than they have been for the last couple of months than doing it face to face so I think there is, uh, there is an element of we're going to be adapting forever because of some of the things that have happened recently. So generally, it's more stable at the moment, the foster care world, than it is generally, which is a blessing, really, because moving children is hard. Yeah. So, yeah, it's higher consequences, more challenge if the, if the placement does break down, but blessedly fewer of them breaking down. So... A lot of education is also obviously happening online at the moment uh, and lots of, uh, I guess, all of the young people who are in care are eligible to go to school. But my sense is that virtual schools and foster carers are generally not pushing for that to, to happen. How are, you, how are the, the children you're looking after handling the education? Are they, is that going well? Um, it is going pretty well, actually. I mean, about 80 to 90 percent of our carers are keeping the children at home. And we, we've had rows with the DfE about this and ADC, ADCS centrally, though individual local authorities are taking the same view as we are. Public Health England said very early on that anyone who can safely be looked after at home should be. And if that doesn't apply to foster children, then God help us, to be honest with you. you know, they, they are safe in their homes. So the majority are staying at home. There are some where the structure of the school day is absolutely necessary to their function. So we have children with additional needs where that's the case. And they're in school and that's supporting them and helping the family to stay together. That would probably quickly unravel if there wasn't that arrangement. 
schools generally, in my understanding, are not providing much education at the moment, even when they are open. They are acting in the main as creches for people who have no other option and have to go to work, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think we should pretend they are schools in the traditional sense of, of schools. We've got a head of education who's done a lot of online materials for foster carers, but the main message we're giving out to them is you're not teachers. Don't set yourself up to fail here. You know, there are things educationally you can do and we'll support you in doing those, but a lot of those are through experiential learning by doing activities and getting them involved in household activities and do the learning that way. And as I said earlier, the, the anxiety levels of the children has fallen somewhat. Partly that's because a higher proportion of children in foster care than the general population do not view school as their friend. You know, school is not a scenario, a place where they feel safe, they feel they achieve, they feel that adds their self-esteem, they often feel the other way. You know, a lot of our children have missed chunks of early education because of family circumstance, and that's difficult to catch up on. So not being in school has helped the self-esteem of some. So education continues, but, you know, by other means. And, you know, people are doing a good job. I think the danger is if parents generally or foster parents think they have to replicate the teaching role because you just can't. I think there's quite a lot of respect for teachers growing out there as well. It has to be said, I think uh, both staff and foster carers are thinking that uh, teaching is a much harder task than they thought it was at the start of this. Yeah, I certainly have a newfound and substantial <laughs> respect for the, the the nursery who look after my son under normal terms. <laughs> um, there is, there's, there's those lovely little posters you can get for your window now which say, Ofsted, bloody appalling. Yeah, I, you know, I, I live in hope that as well as sort of a greater respect and admiration for NHS workers and for teachers that, that that grows for other people who are working to keep people safe in these times like social workers and like foster carers. But we'll we'll see how that goes. No, absolutely. You know, and all the people, I mean, the one morning dog walk, I see the, uh, the refuge men going out. There's not much social distancing going on there. But, you know, if they weren't, then we'd be overrun by rats by now. That's true. Um, so my last <laughs> question for you uh, is, again, in two parts. So what do you think has been the biggest challenge for you and your organisation in the past coming up on eight weeks? And what is the thing that you're most proud of in that time? Uh, the biggest challenge at the moment is getting recognition that foster carers have additional costs from having the children at home. Children at home graze on food all day, so your food bills go up. Your paper bills, your printing bills, you know, there's just more expenses to being at home 24-7. And the DfE are doing the usual dance of saying, oh, we've given some money to local authorities for that. But you look at the list of things that the money was for and you know that it was never going to go that far. So that's an ongoing battle. But the, the good thing is that a lot of local authorities and fostering organisations and foster carers have joined together to lobby government on that. So we're making headway. But that's been a pain because, you know, we've got foster carers who are subsidising the state in the moment, which isn't how things should be. And no one makes money out of foster care. You know, it's uh, you cover your costs. People do it out of a sense of vocation, not to uh, not to make money. I think we're proudest of. I think it's just how astonishingly well everyone has reacted, both staff and foster carers, and really taken the sense that, right, well, it's our job to care for these children at this time. We've just got to get on with it. And whatever anxiety and fears we have, and, you know, those anxieties and fears are very real, they have to work through those. I think the challenge is going to be coming out of the present phase 
because I don't think there's a great deal of trust out there about, well, how come we needed to be like this for eight, ten weeks and suddenly we don't? What's changed? We haven't seen a vaccine anywhere. No one we know has been tested. What, why, why are we doing this? So I think there's a there's a real desire for things to progress slowly because otherwise I think the anxieties will spill over. And the other concern we have is getting children engaged with the outside world again. Any child going into this with any kind of school phobia or who found the world a challenging place, well, everything they thought about the world has been said to be true. And so we're going to have to work very closely with children to get them back engaged socially with the world. But then some are really missing it, so they want to uh, they want to get straight back out there. And I think the way in which, and it's noticeable around local authorities as well, the way in which social work and the profession has responded to this generally has been very, very impressive. And people are getting on with visits and they're using, you know, this technology to keep in touch with young people and vulnerable young people in their own homes and make sure that that connection has not been lost, which is great. That's fantastic. Um, so, Andy, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you for giving us your time. Um, and thank you to you and all of your colleagues for all of the work that you're doing at the moment. Thank you for listening to this COVID-19 special edition of the What Works for Children's Social Care podcast. We hope you found it interesting and useful. If there are any topics you would like us to cover, or you would like to get involved and share how you are adapting to these challenges, please get in touch. Details are in the show notes. Don't forget to check out our regular podcast for the latest on evidence-based practice to improve outcomes for children, young people, and families. You can also find lots of interesting research on our website, as well as other ways to get involved. Thank you.